Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy Angel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. You surround us with your shield, and your protection is our crown. Your shield is our crown. It is our triumph, for the crown is the symbol of victory. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered today. We're going back to the 5th century, early 5th century, to hear a sermon from Jerome. It's titled Psalms 5. Troy, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I got caught in a very, very heavy rainstorm in a run earlier today. So that kind of, I mean, it was, it was like running through a tropical hurricane, mm. basically, uh, for 10 minutes. And then as soon as I got home, it stopped raining. So that kind of wiped me out. But uh, honestly, things are going very well. Very, this one of those very busy, but a lot of good things happening, I feel like, seasons for us over here. How are you doing, Joel? I'm doing pretty good. What's your go-to shoe drying technique? Do you have do you have a system in place? <laughs> I currently have my shoes, which were soaked. I mean, it was just, I, I, I don't oh. think you could have put me in a shower and made me wetter than I was from that run. Um, I currently have them drying on a chair with a fan right next to them. So we're hoping okay. that that'll do the trick. However, the fan doesn't tilt down perfectly. So it's like blowing air right across the top of them. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see if that works. But I am a little bit worried because I have very large feet. I have American size 14 feet. And I live in a country that, I mean, if you were to find what would be an American size 12 somewhere, that would be considered a huge shoe. So if these running shoes were to fall apart, I would be in mm. uh, in a bit of a tiff because I would not have any easy means of replacing these larger shoes. In fact, when we went to America, like I had to buy a bunch of shoes, work shoes, workout shoes, regular shoes, and just kind of load up an entire suitcase of my f- f- shoes, which my wife was like, we're spending an entire suitcase just filling up these giant shoes. And spending all the money, but it was if we don't get those shoes while we're in America, while we can, I you know I can't replace them, so you know I have to make them last. So prayerfully, all the shoes dry out, everything's great, and I don't have any major issues. But it, it was it was a fear the, the entire time I was running, I was getting soaked, and all I could think about was like, oh no, these shoes. I hope they're okay. <laughs> these poor shoes. The things you don't think about when uh, you think about living overseas, huh? Joel, we have had some positive responses to some recent episodes of Revive Thoughts, and we always try to read some of those responses as they come in. Here's one from Twitter, aka X, whatever we call it. Uh, Yesi said, great episode of Revive Thoughts and shared our recent Revived conversation, the Jonathan Edwards Resolutions episode. Thank you so much for listening to the episode, and we're glad that you shared it and glad that you enjoyed that discussion that we have. We also had an email come in from a gentleman, and I really appreciated him. He was from New Zealand, and after kind of sending some emails back and forth, he told me if I'm ever in the part of New Zealand he's in, I've got a place that I can go visit, and he'll take care of me, which sounds great. Um, I don't, I don't know that he said I can stay with him, but I, you know, I'm assuming that this means we are, we are going to be hotel nice at his buds. house. I don't yeah. see my elder self. And now, before he gets nervous, I don't know that I'm ever going to make it to New Zealand, but I do, I do live on the same side of the world as him, so I guess it is theoretically possible. However, my favorite part is he opened his email. His name is Not Eric Rich, which I appreciate. All of you who understand that reference, thank you for keeping sending those in. Some of our new listeners might be going, Why, what is that? It's an older episode, but we can't explain it. All right. 
And he said, I love church history, and your approach is both refreshing and a massive encouragement to my faith in Christ. And he said, some recent episodes that have been a blessing are Bonhoeffer, Gideon is my Lord, Winslow, time is in God's hands, D.L. Moody, what do you think of Christ, Woodrow Wilson, post-mill president, part one and two, and Luther, the parable of the unforgiven servant. I really love about this, besides just, you know, thank you for the kind words, is that you were like, I love it. Here are just some recent episodes. And to me, that sounded like all of our pretty much recent episodes. I was like, that's, that's all of them right there. That's been most of the episodes. So I'm glad that so many of them have been an encouragement to you. We also wanted to give a shout out on Patreon to Mike C. However, I it says that he subscribed. He's back. And it was like, hey, Mike C is a Patreon. I went to kind of greet him. But then I looked over and he'd already been a Patreon. So Mike, I'm not sure if you were a Patreon and came back or if you just something maybe in the system re-added you or you're, I don't know what's going on there, but Mike, welcome aboard either way, one way or the other. We're happy that on some level you seem to be back. We're glad we didn't lose you, Mike. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Uh, Troy, Jerome, I feel like uh, you're maybe poking the tiger a little bit with this one. We were talking before the show and you were saying how, you know, maybe... Um, you could have uh, added a bit more balance to our episode today or so. What are your thoughts on uh, on Jerome and, and how we're going to cover him? So I have to say, with Jerome, I, I, I this episode I was really focused on just his biography. I don't know... I don't know his biography. I didn't know his life story. And a lot of times when I'm starting with somebody, I kind of just go there. That's my kind of instinctual, like, who are these people? And then over time, the more we cover a guy, the more I start to get into, like, specific controversies and things like that. So with Charles Spurgeon, we tend to get in the weeds and go, like, straight for certain things. And with people like Jerome that we've never had on the show, tend to do more of a life story take. However, at the end of the episode, I was telling Joel, I was like, I just don't feel like I covered his controversies because Jerome does get involved. <laughs> like when you hear the name Jerome, he is a controversial figure in church history. And there's a lot of things and a lot of reasons people do it. And I was looking at the script. I was like, I, I just don't think I did a great job. So I do apologize to you. Normally I try to research and include some of those things so you get a taste of them. And I, it was not intentional. I wasn't trying to sugarcoat him or anything like that. It just, the way the script went was so biography focused that I just couldn't really... I didn't really feel like it fit with what we're doing. So the next time we cover Jerome, if you're if you're waiting on on edge of your seat, going, I got to hear Joy and Joel's take on uh, on these guys. Uh, we Jerome. will hopefully, you know, the next time we get around to Jerome, we will start covering some of the different controversial, more controversial sides of them. Yeah, if we get around, we might get canceled right here and now, and, and this is the end of Revive <laughs> Thoughts. But no, that, no, our really listeners are better I would, than that. If that would be surprising, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, we we do occasionally cover controversial folks here on this show. Uh, it's kind of in the spirit of Revive Thoughts of we respect our listeners and we know that our listeners are smart people and uh, formulate their opinions and have opinions on these things. We're just here to kind of help contextualize old church history and where these sermons took place and the audiences they took place at. So if you've never heard of Jerome, then this is a good introduction and you can you can dive into them a little bit more and let us know your thoughts. You always write in. We always love people to write in. Revive thoughts at gmail.com. Uh, let us know your thoughts on Jerome if you have them. And I assure you, the passionate people will probably let us know their thoughts on Jerome. <laughs> Which again, we, we we love. We welcome. We invite. Born in the year 347. So again, we're going way back. This is an older one. In Croatia, this man was born. I think he might be our first Croatian person that we've ever had from that region i can't think of any other person that i'm aware either. of yeah first oh, croatian thank you jerome we finally got somebody from croatia we've been waiting so long uh when he got old enough his father sent him off to school in rome in the year 366 and he learned gratin gratin <laughs> <laughs> 
It's a new language, Grattan, yeah. He had a fascination with linguistics at an early age, and so he really got into uh, Latin and Greek. He learned languages, and he began translation work. He loved to copy down classic works uh, and add them to his own collection, like just, just for fun, just personal, his personal library, building it out with translated works. In his early 20s, he went to the Roman capital, Gallic Providence, a, a town called uh, Trier, I believe is how you pronounce that. Tri Trier? Trier. Trier. It's a, it, today, it's called Trivis, if you're familiar with that area. This gave him access to like really old writings that he was very excited about, and he set up shop there. And while researching and translating these old writings, uh, he became fascinated with these stories of these old martyrs from, you know, what would have been, you know, three, four hundred years in his past at that point. He then afterward did a tour of Asia and ended up giving up studying Greek philosophy and shifting his studies completely over to these Christian writings that he loved and, and found so fascinating and working on translating scriptures themselves. At one point, he lived for about five years in a desert as a monk in the desert of Asia. You know, Joel, we should do a revived conversation on these isolated desert monks. I know that sounds weird if you're listening mm. right now, but I'm telling you, I I think we could do an episode on that that would really be interesting to you because they have a perspective on material belongings that although hmm. I think is wrong, I also think that there were so many of them and it was such a thing for a while that I think mm -hmm. you can still, we can still, there's something to be learned from the way they viewed um, material things. And so I... I put that on the docket for future revived conversation, the monks in the desert or something like that. Cause I, I have, I have a lot of thoughts on that. I've actually recently taught a class of my students on that. And I feel like there's, there is something to be learned from this, sure. th this phenomenon sure. that happens in the fourth century. I, Jerome uh, really struggled with missing Rome. He kind of grew up in a very privileged time to be in Rome. He, it was at the height of its prosperity. Uh, it's actually interesting, Joel, both this episode and the next episode are from people who came from very wealthy backgrounds uh, who gave it all up. And he really beat himself up, too, for missing the world. So he missed the worldly delights, and he kind of beat himself up for missing them, too. It kind of it hurt his heart that he was so attached to these things. However, he got pulled out of the monk lifestyle because the priests of Antioch and the nearby region he was in continuously got into quarrels and could not figure out how to run the church. And they kept having to drag him out of his like seclusion to help them with another problem. You know, these monks that lived out in the desert did these like things by themselves in isolation were seen as like really, really holy men. And so when you were in trouble, you would run to them and basically say, you know, what do we do? But this happened so often, eventually he kind of got tied down to the area. So he became a priest, uh, a freelancing priest. I've never even heard of that in all of our times doing this show. But apparently he was a, a non-tied down priest. He could kind of go where he pleased. He eventually went to Rome where he studied and worked with Gregory of Nazianzus, who uh, we've covered episodes on him. Big, important name. One of the Cappadocian, Cappadocian fathers uh, learned about him, listened to our episodes on him. And Jerome was just seen as a great writer. He was really good at it. He was brought to Rome to become a librarian and secretary. He was considered top. People thought he was going to be a next pope. The pope really, the the pope, the pope really favored him. Uh, commissioned him to create the pope. He commissioned him to create a Latin version of the Bible and uh, put it into the common tongue. At the time, you know, it hit, the Bible was still kind of in Koinonia. Koinonia. Oh my gosh, Koinonia Greek and. 
he was moving it to Latin, the, the tongue of the people that actually they were speaking more of. That was more of the common language at the time. Uh, he had many friends, too, and he, he had that monk background, a great writer. People really saw him as a potential future pope, but he had one thing against him, and that was he enjoyed writing satirical attacks on the Roman clergy's hypocrisies, like basically making fun of them uh, and calling them out. Now, of course, that makes him really famous. You know, the public loves this. They're, they're eating it up. They love that he's calling out the clergy for their lack of sincerity, uh, but that makes you enemies. When you do stuff like that, people are kind of, you know, they're getting their buttons poked. He made some real enemies doing that. Jerome himself was safe, but when a patron that was over him died, an investigation was made by his enemies against him, and he was banished from Rome. Jerome eventually made his way through Turkey and eventually over to Bethlehem. And while he was at Bethlehem, he met up with other kind of like-minded pilgrims that were coming through at the time, and I guess he headed off because they started a monastery together, a little, a little Bethlehem club is how I like to think about it. And uh, again, as Jerome does, he sits down and starts writing and he gets some of his best work of his life done here in Bethlehem. And in fact, uh, would kind of just end up spending the rest of his life here. Uh, he translated the entire Old Testament into Latin, which was the, the dominant common tongue of that time, and got a good chunk of the New Testament done in Latin as well. His crowning achievement would be this translating the Bible into Latin. That's still kind of what he is famous for today. However, as he was in Bethlehem, the world just became kind of a riskier, more dangerous place. The Huns and pagan barbarians began to invade and destroy parts of the Roman Empire, including Rome itself. Uh, he would also have more public disputes with different theologians. Him and Augustine specifically would kind of go at it back and forth. And they would also kind of have a friendly relationship as well. They wrote letters back and forth, and we have some of these letters too. So it's kind of interesting. You don't usually have, you know, these big famous theologians throughout history having like conversations with each other, and we're kind of looking at them, seeing them happen in real time. It's kind of a unique aspect of Jerome and Augustine. I'm afraid to say I've never looked at them, but I, I'm very interested. I'd like to look at them. Uh, on top of that, he would also go after big heretics during his day as well. As many of these people did, they were almost all of these people during this time period became famous because there was some heresy or some divisive leader that they were specifically targeting, and Jerome had his as well. Now, not all that he did was good. Many people believed he pioneered an overly allegorical way of preaching. That is, when you look at the scripture, you see other images and symbolisms and things that just aren't natural readings of the text on any level. It's not to say there are never script, you know, there are never symbols in the text, but you're adding a lot more to it. You know, instead of just seeing Jesus walking on water, you're seeing Jesus walking, the Christian nation walking across the nations that are the ocean or something like that. And uh, this would become a very common way of preaching in the medieval era, and many people kind of tie it back to Jerome and say, like, Jerome was one of the founders of this idea. He was not the only one, but he was a big founder and pusher of this idea, and it came, became very popular, and it's just not a natural reading of the text, and so he definitely gets a lot of discredit for that. Outside of Augustine, uh, Jerome was actually the most prolific writer of this era whose books we have. Augustine wrote the most from this era, but Jerome was second most, so you're, you're number two behind 
one of the big names. Uh, he also contributed. This one was just random. It's probably not even related. It may, may not have even been appropriate for the script, but I just thought this was so weird. He apparently helped contribute to the knowledge of vitamin A. While he was starving himself as a monk out there, he kind of noticed his symptoms and picked up on, like, if I eat these certain foods, I get better, and if I don't, I get sick, and was able to kind of deduce not he didn't know the name of it was vitamin A or anything like that, as far as we can tell, but he was able to do deduce and figure out through his um, symptoms of the existence of of this thing, vitamin A, that his body needed. So just a little fun thing he did during his time as a monk. All right, now listen to Jerome's sermon on Psalms 5, and uh, a sermon that's over 1,600 years old. This psalm has for its title, For the End, For Her That Obtains the Inheritance, a Psalm of David. There are many who insist that the titles do not belong in the psalms, but we really do not know why they hold such a view. If the titles were not found in all the manuscripts, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, their position would be understandable. Since, however, there are titles in the Hebrew books, and this one in particular marks the fifth psalm, I am amazed at the implication that there can be anything in Scripture without reason. If it is true that not one jot or one tittle will be lost from the law, how much more will not a word or a syllable be lost? For the end of her that obtains the inheritance, a psalm of David. Our inheritance is not promised at the beginning, but at the end of the world. The Jews thought they had obtained theirs at the beginning. But we obtain ours at the end. That is precisely why the Apostle John says, Dear children, it is the last hour. The end means the last hour. The inheritance is at the end. For the end, for her that obtains the inheritance. Who is she who is to obtain the inheritance? I believe it is the church. For it is the church who receives the inheritance. A Psalm of David. David sings at the beginning that the church wins the inheritance at the end. The fifth psalm, therefore, sings in the name of the church. There are, however, several other interpretations. Many say that the psalms accords with the history of the people of Israel who long to return to Judea from Babylon, but they have failed to interpret for the end and for her that obtains the inheritance. We then, by combining spiritual with spiritual, will endeavor with the help of your prayers to consider this psalm as applying to the church. Listen to my words, O Lord. No one has confidence like this except the church. The sinner does not dare to say, listen to my words, O Lord. The man who has cursed in his rage does not dare say, listen to my words, O Lord, but he rather hopes that God will not hear him. Attend to my cry, the word cry in scripture does not refer to the cry of the voice, but to the cry of the heart. In fact, the Lord says to Moses, why are you crying out to me when Moses had not uttered any cry at all? Again, the apostle says, into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. But you would say, one who cries out does not cry out with the heart, but with his tongue. With what meaning, then, does the apostle say, into our hearts crying? 
when our lamentation and our conscience entreat the Lord, this is the kind of cry that God heeds. Likewise, the words of Jeremiah, let there be no rest in for my eyes. Notice what he says, let not even the pupil of my eye be silent. Sometimes the very pupil of our eye cries out to God. But does one not cry out with his tongue and not with his eye? No, just as we cry in our heart when we beg God with our groaning, so too when we pour out our tears to God, the pupil of our eye is crying out to the Lord. My King and my God, in truth, only one who is no longer ruled by sin can dare say, my King and my God. Because you reign in me and sin does not, that is why you are my God. You are my God because my stomach is not my God. Gold is not my God. Lust is not my God. Since you are virtue and I desire to possess virtue, you are my God. You are my virtue. At dawn, you hear my voice. Some preachers explain these words quite simply in this way. I rise at dawn to pray and make supplication to you. Certainly this interpretation is allowable. But what does the verse really mean? God hears our voice in the morning. So will he not hear us in the evening, but not in the middle of the night? Listen to what the words really mean. As long as I am wandering in the darkness of error, you do not hear me. But after the son of justice has come into my heart, then you will. At dawn, you hear my voice. The psalm does not say at the third hour, nor at the sixth hour, nor in the full daylight, but at dawn. Just as soon as the shades of night have begun to scatter, you hear my voice. Just as soon as I begin a good work, you hear my voice. You do not wait for the end. It is mine to will and yours to accomplish. At dawn, I will stand before you and will see. Notice the order. At dawn, not in the evening, not in the darkness, but at dawn. At dawn, I will stand before you. I will stand steadfast. I will imitate Moses. At dawn, I will stand before you. I will stand before you and before no other. Moreover, when morning comes, I will continue to be standing, standing before you. Then I will deserve to see you and will see. It is understood, of course, I will see you. For you, O God, delight not in the wickedness. You will not hear me in the broad daylight. But early in the morning, because, my God, you do not will iniquity. The very moment that I begin to withdraw from iniquity, that very moment do I merit your attention to my prayers. No evil man remains in you. Whenever an evil man leaves us, we ought to rejoice. It will be with us as with the Lord, that an evil man does not live with us any more than he would dwell with the Lord. Hear what the Holy Spirit says. No evil man remains with you. The wicked will not remain with you. For what fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Baal? So when any of the wicked part from our company, we too will say, they have gone out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would surely have continued with us. The words, no evil man remains with you, are addressed to God. For if God is fire and a consuming fire, everyone who is stubble, everyone who is wood, runs away from the fire that he is not consumed.
the arrogant may not stand in your sight. Since the scriptures say they may not stand, it is obvious that at some time they were in the presence of God. God permitted them to remain in his sight while he was waiting for them to repent. But because they held out in their wickedness, they could not remain before him. You hate all evildoers. Unhappy is the man whom God hates. Whom does God hate? The evildoer. But if we are all sinners and every sinner is hated by God, it would naturally follow that we are all hated by God. If, however, we are all hated by God, how is it that we have been saved by grace? You hate all evildoers. The psalmist did not say those who have been guilty of wrongdoing, but those who are wrongdoers. Those who persevere in sin are those who are held in abhorrence by God. But those who abandon the ways of sin are loved by God. You hate all evildoers. These words are intended for sinners who are persisting in sin. Let us look at the next verse. You destroy all who speak falsehood. I find a new thought in these words. The worker of evil is hated by God. The liar perishes. Let us see now which is the worst state, to be hated by God or to perish. The man whom God hates is unhappy indeed, for he exists in the enmity of God. Nevertheless, he is still alive, but the liar who is destroyed has ceased to exist. The man who lies is in a worse state, therefore, than the one who does evil. Though the evildoer is subject to the hatred of God, the liar perishes altogether. A a lying mouth slays the soul. What meaning is there further to the words? For God is true and every man is a liar. If everyone who utters a lie has already destroyed his soul and all of us are liars, are we all going to perish? What scripture says in the words, you destroy all who speak falsehood. We should interpret as referring to heretics, both from the forward movement of the psalm and from the order within the movement itself. The doer of evil has indeed killed his own soul, but the heretic, the liar, has killed as many souls as he has seduced. You destroy all who speak falsehood. But who are these people who speak falsehood? The bloodthirsty and the deceitful the Lord abhors. Every heretic is bloodthirsty, for every day he spills the blood of souls. The bloodthirsty are the deceitful. Deceitful is the right word. He is both a murderer and a practitioner of deceit. How is he deceitful? His words deliberately misrepresent the words of the Lord. The bloodthirsty and the deceitful, the Lord abhors. Just think of the condition of the heretic. The Lord abhors him. The psalm says, of sinners, you hate all evildoers. Of false teachers, the Lord abhors them. But I, because of your abundant kindness, will enter your house. The wicked in their iniquity depart from your house. I, by your mercy, shall enter your house. I will enter your house, which is the church. I will worship at your holy temple in fear of you. The church is your house, also your temple. O Lord, because of my enemies, guide me in your justice. Indeed, do I long to enter your house, and I desire to enter it by your way of justice, because my enemies are continually besetting my path with snares and setting traps for me all along the way, while my one longing is to enter your house. I am 
begging you to keep my feet firm in your path to the very end. It is mine to set my feet in your way. It is yours to direct my step. Because my enemies make straight your way before me. Make straight your way before me on account of the enemies who seek to ensnare me. Which is this way of yours? The reading of Holy Scripture. Direct my steps, therefore, so that I do not stumble in the reading of your word. For through reading your word, I desire to enter your church. For everyone who has a faulty understanding of the Holy Word falls down in the path of God. For in their mouth there is no sincerity. This is a description of heretics. The heretic is bloodthirsty and deceitful man whom the Lord abhors. In their mouth there is no sincerity. Heretics do not have Christ, the truth on their lips, because they do not have him in their hearts. Their heart is vain. The Hebrew text is better here. Their heart is treacherous. For truly the heart of the heretic lies in wait for all whom he may ensnare. Their throat is an open grave. Heretics are unhappy men. They are white tombs full of dead men's bones. Their throats is an open grave. Arius, Enomius, and other heretics have tongues like arrows, jaws like empty tombs. Their throat is an open grave. Open is well said, for whenever anyone has been deceived enough to enter the tomb, the heretic is ready to draw him right in. The mouth of heretics are forever gaping. Their throat is an open grave, and they flatter with their tongue. They mean one thing in their heart, but they promise another with their lips. They speak with piety, but conceal impiety. They speak like Christ, while they hide the Antichrist. For they know that they will never succeed with their seduction if they do not hide their motives. They present light only to conceal darkness, and through light they lead one into darkness. They flatter with their tongue. Punish them, O God. Let them know that you are judge and that you are mindful of human affairs. You are going to judge in the end. Judge now also in the present You are to judge in general, judge now in particular. Those who refuse to know the Father, let them experience the judge. Punish them, O God, and how? The answer follows. Let them fall by their own devices. If you repay them now, in the present, as they deserve, they will begin to withdraw from their evil schemes. As long as they do not experience you as judge, they are without fear. Let them fall by their own devices. Excellently said, by their own devices. For heretics change or alter their doctrine from day to day. In fact, if a theologian learned in the scripture contends with them with proof from the sacred books, what do they do but quickly turn around in search of a new doctrine? They do not seek knowledge for the sake of salvation, but look around for new doctrine to vanquish the opponent. Here the psalmist said, let them fall by their own devices. Let them fall away from their own own countless opinions, and let them have but one recourse, you, my God. For their many sins, cast them out. Now it does not say from which place God should cast out the wicked, whether he should cast them out of heaven or from the face of the earth. Scripture is not clear at this point because of the transposed word order of this verse. We have to read, therefore, for their many sins, cast them out. But the meaning is, because of your mercy, cast them off from their many wickednesses. Do not let them go on living in their many sins. There is, however, another interpretation. 
Because the wicked have been so thoroughly wicked, they have not wanted to give up their evil schemes, but they have gone on adding sin to sin and heaping up their sin daily. And so their wickedness grows increasingly. And for that reason, they are to be cast out. But cast them out from where? From her who obtains the inheritance. That is, from the church who obtains your inheritance. Cast them out, for they may not abide in the church, since they do not have faith in her, because they have rebelled against you. You are, O Lord, sweet by nature, but sinners and heretics change the sweetness of your nature into bitterness because of their evil devices. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let sinners and heretics perish. Let your churchmen be glad and exalt forever. Here we ought to say something about eternity, not about the present, but about the future world. As a matter of fact, the scripture did not say they rejoice in the present world as let them exalt implies the future world. Here, sorrow, but then there will be true joy. In the present world, heretics laugh. In the future, they will lament. We indeed lament in the present that we may rejoice in the future and exalt forever. What will this joy of holy men be like? And you who will dwell with them, they will be blessed and happy who deserve to possess Christ as their guest. And you will dwell with them. Happy are they who will become the tabernacles of Christ, that you may be the joy of those who love your name. Everyone who loves the Lord will exalt in the Lord. See what it says, that you may be the joy of those who love your name. They who love, not they who fear, but they who love. Wherever there is fear, love is absent. For perfect love casts out fear. Whoever loves the name of the Lord, they will rejoice that you may be the joy. Our beatitude is of the future to which alone the promise refers. Let some rule with power. Others possess wealth. Still others receive honor and recognition. We, on the other hand, are miserable in this life in order to be happy in the next. Let us follow Christ our Lord. He who says he believes in Christ ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Christ, the Son of God, has not come to be served, but to serve. He does not come to command, but to obey. He did not come to have his own feet washed, but to wash the feet of his disciples. He did not come to strike others, but to be struck. He did not give blows, but receive them. He did not crucify, but was crucified. He did not destroy, but himself suffered destruction. He was poor to make us rich. He was scourged for our sake that we might escape scourging. As often as we are struck, let us offer our cheek to the blows. Let us lay bare our backs to receive the stripes. Let us imitate Christ. He who is struck with blows imitates Christ. He who strikes imitates the Antichrist. Now, why do I say all this? To glorify the name of Christ in whatever we suffer in this life. While we are talking, while we are walking, suddenly we are carried off. I myself who speak to you today know not what tomorrow holds for me. If a slight fever should come upon me, where is that voice of mine? Where is my pride? Suddenly it is turned to ash. Why are dust and ashes proud? We are nothing but dust and ashes. For dust you are and to dust you will return. 
and dust raises itself up against its maker. The next words of the psalm are, for you will bless the just man. You will bless the just in the future life. O Lord, you crown him with the shield of your goodwill. In the world, a shield is one thing and a crown is another, but with God, he himself is our shield and he himself is our crown. He protects us as if he were a shield and as God, he crowns us. He is our shield and he is our crown. So say scripture, O Lord, you crown him with the shield of your goodwill. You surround us with your shield and your protection is our crown. Your shield is our crown. It is our triumph for the crown is the symbol of victory. Let us give thanks to God and let us beg him in his goodwill to be our shield and crown that we may never depart from him and that we may follow him and declare with Jeremiah, I was not weary of following you. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I love this line here. Every heretic is bloodthirsty for every day he spills the blood of souls. And I just, man, like what? It's true. It's a great line. It sticks with you. And Jerome, I think, you know, for all of the, again, we kind of talked at the top that there are some controversies around him. For the controversies around him, I don't think enough people have given him credit that he is just an excellent speaker. He has a way with words and with saying things. And I can see why he was such an effective preacher in his day. And I just, listening to the sermon, reading through the sermon when I was editing it, I just appreciated that, you know, he, for, again, for his faults, he was very clear in his day that false teachers were wicked and that need to be defeated. And he had a very good way of just kind of putting things together so that you uh, would remember what he said and hear what he said, and it would affect his listeners well. And I think Jerome is the kind of man that it was more common in that era where they worked hard to make sure that what they said stuck out in your mind. And I just think that that is something that is not necessarily lost today, but it's something that I think we should appreciate about Jerome when he did it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Patrick Studebaker over from the Cave to the Cross podcast. Listeners, if you haven't checked out the Cave to the Cross podcast, uh, you really should. It is right up our alley. Like, if you like Revive Thoughts, you'll probably like Cave to the Cross podcast. Yeah, absolutely. He loves to go over uh, books and talk about apologetics. He has great guests on. He absolutely is worth your time. Patrick has read multiples of episodes for us. He has been really kind to our show throughout the years, and we really encourage you. If you are looking for another show, if you're looking for a show that's interesting to you, uh, that has to do with apologetics and is, you know, gets pretty deep, I highly recommend Cave to the Cross podcast as a show to go check out. And you cannot meet a nicer person. There cannot be a greater friend to our show than Patrick. And so we really appreciate him and we really thank him for helping us with so many different episodes. If you enjoyed this episode and you're thinking to yourself, hey, I enjoy all these episodes by Revive Thoughts. I, I love the sermons they're bringing back to life. What can I do to help? Well, hey, we are always looking for 
people to read sermons for us. And if you are interested in being one of these voices, each of these voices is a volunteer. Each of these people who speak our show is a different person from around the world. Um, we've had people from all over, from different backgrounds, and some of them are, are radio hosts. Some of them have been, uh, you know, pastors and preachers of big congregations, but many of them are just regular people who listen to the show, enjoy the show, and wanted to add their voice. And if you are one of those people and you have a microphone or have access to a microphone, we would love for you to send us an email or five thoughts at gmail.com or reach out to us through one of our social media pages and say, hey, I would be interested in reading these sermons because we are always needing new volunteers to read sermons and we are always thankfully getting new volunteers and people who are adding to our uh, our list and we really appreciate that. So thank you for listening. This has been Troy and Joel and this is Revive Thoughts. Yeah.